Welcome and thank you for joining us. Here at Calvary Chapel Eldoret, we believe in impacting and changing people's lives through the Bible, which is the only inspired and infallible Word of God. For more information, be sure to check out our website at ccelderet.org. That is ccelderet.org. And here is today's word. John chapter 20. And remember, you don't have to have money. Doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the heart that is perfect and directed towards him. Maybe the Lord would put it on one of our hearts here to also go do the work of the ministry. We see in John chapter 20, this incredible portion of scripture also what we learned last week in John 19, 30, through the end of the chapter. We're going in a three-week series, maybe four, an expositional series called Jesus the Death Conqueror. Jesus the Death Conqueror. And we talked last week in this amazing portion of Scripture about how this Scripture continually mentions over and over and over the prophecies that were fulfilled surrounding the death of Jesus Christ, the treatment of Jesus Christ's body, surrounding his burial, and even this morning surrounding his very resurrection. And the reason why this is so significant, as I mentioned last week, is that... It shows that Jesus Christ has divine power over every circumstances concerning his life, his death, the treatment of his body, his burial, and his resurrection. And church, please notice over and over and over again, it mentioning, and it was fulfilled, and scripture was fulfilled and scripture was fulfilled. And the reason why the Bible is doing that, one of the primary reasons, is so that we might believe, that we might increase our belief, increase our trust, increase our faith in Jesus Christ. We all have doubts. We all have worries. We all have circumstances that come in our lives that cause fear and anxiety and doubts that would decrease our trust, our faith, and our belief in an absolutely powerful God who's in control of every aspect of his life and ours. And we need to remind ourselves both in individual study and Bible reading and what the church is for in its six pillars, the corporate Bible study and reading of his word. So you, we, we saw last week this incredible portion of scripture and we've been seeing it as we were studying over 10 months ago. This word fulfilled, you remember, in John 13, when they're in the upper room, Jesus Christ says, 
one of you is going to betray me. Why did he say that? Is he, is he chiding? Is he boasting? Is he mocking? Is he, is he getting that word out so he can just feel better about what that person's about to do to him? No, he's doing it so that they might believe that Judas is scary and Satan is not getting the better of him. And they're like, who, who is it? Well, the one who I dip the bread in the soup and then I'll give it to him. And he dips the bread and he gives it to Judas. And they're so confused by their blind ambition that seemingly manifests itself in stupidity. And really, they're not stupid people, by the way. And by the way, when you find a lot of dumb people, it's not that you're just born dumb. God has created the mind in a powerful way, but sin turns people stupid. Sin turns people confused and deceived. And nobody is exempt from that. I don't care if you have a PhD in astrophysics. Sin will turn people dumb. So he's he's saying it as plain as day. Uh, He's going to betray me. I'm going to dip the bread. It's this one. It's this one. It's this one. And then they're all like, oh, where's Judas going? Oh, maybe he's going to buy some more food. And and honestly, as, as life goes on for me, I'm a lot less hard on the disciples because I have seen how many dumb things I have said and done. But still, the Bible mentions it. And it's over and it's over and it's over again. He's even like, hey, there's going to be a donkey on the road called straight. Donkey's cold. Pick it. If anybody asks, say the Lord has need of it. Prophecy fulfilled, scripture fulfilled. And it continues to do that over and over. In the passage of scripture we learned last week, they wouldn't break his bones. Why? Because it says in the Old Testament that no bone on his body will be broken. They didn't break his bones because the Passover lamb can't have a broken lamb or a broken limb or a broken bone. He is the Passover lamb. The soldiers aren't in control. Satan's not in control. Judas Iscariot's not in control. The Sanhedrin's not in control. The chief priests are not in control. No one's in control of the situation except Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know that. He wants us to understand that. So we saw last week those three things. He manifested his power and his control over his death. He said in verse 30 of John 19, and he gave up his spirit. It's very important to know, and I don't want to confuse us with this, but the wrath of God did not necessarily kill Jesus Christ. The wrath of his father. The father was pouring out his wrath and he was beating his son and torturing his son through his anger of sin. And it was Jesus who said, now I will die. He willed his own death. He willed his own death. So we see the manifestation of his power in his death and his control over his death In verse 30, we see the manifestation of his power and control over the treatment of his body. When it says, the chief priests are like, hey, break his legs. We got to prepare for the Sabbath. It's Friday, by the way. Break his legs because we got to prepare for the Sabbath. 
But it says in Psalm what, 34, not a bone on his body will be broken. He already gave up his spirit. They're not going to break his leg, so they break the shins. And that's the part of the leg that they would break, so they couldn't lift their body up to breathe. And of the first thief, and then the second thief, then they come to Jesus only to discover he's already dead because he willed his own death, so they didn't break his legs because Scripture will always be fulfilled. And he, they brought him down. Think of the deception of the chief priest. Consider this. They wanted him to come down so that they could prepare to obey God on the Sabbath. The chief priest killed God to obey God. Hey, hey bring him down. We need to uh, prepare for the Sabbath to, to obey God's law. God is on the cross and they want him dead so they can obey God. They are a deceived people. This is the ultimate height of hypocrisy. We've never seen anything like that in all of Scripture. Hypocrisy. Kill God to obey God. And yet, we need to consider as much as these chief priests are deceived, that we have the potential of being deceived so easily when we look at our desires above God's truth. In their case, a desire of position, of power, a religious power over the Jews. Amen. And we see that he's not going to let his... He's controlling the circumstances of the treatment of his body after he's dead. That's how much power our God has. The Bible prophesies... The two rich men would take him and bury him and pour ointments on him. And you have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus we learned last week. So we see the manifestation of his power and control over his death, over the treatment of his body and over his burial. And today we see the manifestation of his power and control over his resurrection. Verse 1 in chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John wants us to know he's faster in a race than Peter. And he's stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, went in the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed, for yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. We don't know what John believed, or Peter. For it says, then they believed, but yet they did not know the scriptures about him rising again. So 
We don't know exactly what they believed. Maybe they had a little faith that he had rise, though they didn't know the exact references of him rising again in the Old Testament. But nevertheless, what they witnessed is an empty tomb. Listen, church, you got to get this. The cornerstone of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he dies on the cross, but doesn't rise, none of us can be saved. The point of his redemption is to resurrect, and through resurrection, we rise also into new life of righteousness with him. It is not just a demonstration of his power, but a validation of the offer of salvation to us. Just trying to get you uh, some theological understanding of the, the, the resurrection. It is the most significant expression of power from God to save believers. The resurrection is the most significant expression from God to save people, to save us. It is the resurrection. The purpose of salvation is a resurrected people. So much so that Romans 10 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is completely necessary for our salvation to believe in a physical, bodily resurrection. And yet, church, listen, no one saw the resurrection. No one saw the resurrection. God in his wisdom decided that no one would witness the resurrection because we must believe it by faith. All we need to believe in the resurrection or to believe in a resurrection is to have seen a dead body and that same person is now walking around a few days later. You don't actually have to witness the actual rising. He was dead, now he's alive. We don't need a scientific explanation for the resurrection because it is a supernatural miracle. It is what some theologians call a creative miracle. Just like creation, it is folly to try and study the creation account as a scientist. Scientists cannot study creation account. One of the biggest reasons is they weren't there. And science demands an observable uh, situation. We observe science and that's how we know. No one was there during creation. No one was there during the resurrection. You can't study creation from a rational, observable, pragmatic, scientific perspective. You can only study the creation that we see with our eyes today, but you cannot study the actual act of creation itself, nor can you do the resurrection. We can only accept the miraculous evidence that we see throughout history. We can only accept the miraculous declaration of God's word and the testimony that we see throughout history of the actual proof of the resurrection. I'm not saying that it's not provable. 
The resurrection is the most provable historic event in human history, says the scholar Lee Schrobel. Though I disagree with N.T. Wright a lot, the, the great resurrection theologian N.T. Wright and many others say the most provable historic event in human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you can't study it scientifically. You can only believe because we have the proof of a risen Savior. We don't know how it happened other than a kind of surface explanation that God has the power to do it. There's no scientific explanation. It is a supernatural, creative miracle from God. You know what's interesting? Let me divulge a little bit. I don't know if this is going to be beneficial to most of us, but definitely to the uh, apologist in the room. I... I'm, I'm quite bothered at times with, with naturalism and evolution. They are such arrogant, pompous jerks in many cases. Is that too rude to say? What's a Swahili word that I could say? You get into the universities, you hear these people. You, and they, they kind of walk around like, eh. they think they're better than us Christians. They're not, and we're not better than them either. But, but, but you know what? One of the things that Richard Dawkins wrote in his book in trying to disprove the resurrection and creation and God and all this is this notion that, okay, if God created all things, then who created God? And if somebody created God, who created that God? And who created that God? And who created that God? And this is somehow a sophisticated explanation and a plausible reason why we shouldn't believe in the God of the Bible? I thought this guy had a PhD. He's pretty dumb. Because you know why? He believes in something that's eternal too. Because he believes that it came from an organism. But what created the organism that created that organism that created that organism? See, everyone believes in eternity. Everyone. We just know who he is. And if he has the power to create the universe, he darn well has the power to rise from the dead. No one saw it. But you know what we saw? An empty tomb, angelic testimony, women who testify of the empty tomb, soldiers that testify of the empty tomb, Peter and John that testify of the empty tomb, grave clothes in there that were put in a certain way that nobody could have possibly gone in and unraveled him. It's as if he came out of the grave clothes and they stayed in their place. Come on, they wrapped him like a mummy. If you're going to unwrap somebody... You're unwrapping them and you're throwing the cloths. And they would unwrap the head separately. So you throw that cloth, you unwrap the body, you throw that cloth. There'd be cloths everywhere if he was unwrapped and stolen. No, the linen cloths were in their place. We even have the Shroud of Turin, or the Catholics do, unfortunately. Where it is a negative photographic picture stamped because of the power that came out. And they still have it at the Vatican or somewhere. 
I believe in that. We have the grave clothes. We have the Sanhedrin that testify of the empty tomb. As I mentioned, the women, Peter and John, the soldiers testify of an empty tomb. We don't need a scientific explanation. We saw that the tomb was empty. And even more, as we study the next two weeks, we see the risen Lord. They saw him, and we see him in our lives each and every day. What's interesting about these accounts is that Mark, Luke, and Matthew, and John, as it says here in John that we read, that it was still dark when they came out to the garden, these women. Now listen. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, even those most holy amongst us, we have prejudices and biases that we're filled with. Upbringing, certain church, certain environment. And I must say, I gotta give a shout out to you ladies, or at least to these ladies. They're the first ones to show up at the empty tomb, not the men. And men, we need more leaders in the church. We need more leaders in the church. We need more men who will stand up and preach the gospel, no matter what the cost that their family brings, that their culture brings, that their society brings, or that their workplace brings. We need men to lead. It is still three to one to women going on the mission field. Three women to every one man. It is still about 80% of women are the membership of a church to most churches worldwide and 20% men. Men, this is an indictment. We are failing society. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how handsome you are. I don't care how sophisticated your speech is. Most of you speak four languages. I speak half a language and I'm doing all right. I don't care. Men, we need to step up and we need to lead our families, our churches. But these women are the first one in the tomb. And I got to say, when God created mankind, he created Adam first. Now, Adam within himself dwelt the entire image of God. The entire image of God. And within that, he was both man and woman, in a sense. Can you imagine how bipolar he was? He's out building one day, and then at night, he's smelling flowers, crying because he has no one around him. And then, and then God's like, it's not good the man to be alone. And he took from man, woman, and he took a part of what Adam was, and he created a woman so that they could come together and complement each other in the image of God that they're both created in. I have witnessed a deep hatred that women have towards men and a deep hatred that men have towards women. Men and women, we bear a part of God, and we complete the image of God in male and female. Ladies, take it easy on us. I know we're different, but don't expect us to hear what you're saying when we're in the middle of a project across the house. We don't know. And men, 
Stop getting impatient with your wives because they want to spend time with you. By the way, God wants to spend time with us men and oftentimes we won't do it because we're dumb and we think we're busy. The image of God on a woman is beautiful and the image of God on a man is magnificent and they complement each other. These women came to the tomb because of their affection and their love for Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, which is the mother of Jesus, and a whole group of them. They're going to go take care of the body of Jesus Christ, having no idea who's going to roll the tomb away. But when you step out in faith, ladies, you better be sure there's a God who will roll the tomb away before you get there. And men the same way. But the Bible gives us different accounts of what happened. Different accounts that do not contradict one another. It says in Mark that the sun had risen, but it was still early in the morning. It says in Luke that it was early dawn. It says in Matthew that it began to dawn. And it says in John that it was already dark. And you get the critics of the resurrection say, see, the gospel narrative doesn't even complement one another. They're contradictory. It says it's dark, but it said the sun has risen. You know what? These so-called educated academic people, they get really dumb when they start talking about the Bible. You know it can still be dark out when the sun's rising. And you know, these scholars that have analyzed the resurrection account and they see all what may at first appear to be a contradiction is an absolute absolute powerful cooperation. For example, let's say four people committed a murder. And these four people are arrested, but the cops don't have evidence. They have to interrogate them. The first thing that cops will do in an interrogation when there's multiple people involved is they will separate them and put them in four separate rooms. And they'll go in and they'll say, okay, what's the story? And then to the second, what's the story? And the third and the fourth. And one of the ways that police officers have been trained and investigators have been trained to understand that people are lying is if they say the exact same words about the story. So they go to the first person and say, hey, did you go to the house last night? And you know, It's like, yes, I went to the house we walked in, we saw a purple couch, no one was on the purple couch, we yelled upstairs, no one in the house, so we walked out of the house around dark. And then they go to the second person, he says, yes, we walked into the house, we saw a purple couch, no one was on the purple couch, we yelled upstairs, no one was in the house, so we walked out of the house around dark. And then they go to the third person and they say, yes, we walked into the house. We saw the purple couch. No one was on the purple couch. We yelled upstairs. No one was upstairs. So we walked out of the house around dark. And should I say it a fourth time for emphasis? And they know if those four people said the exact same words about that situation, they're lying and they got their story straight before they came and got arrested by the police. Do you understand that the gospel narrative 
that Lee Strobel, the great investigative journalist, said, and, and by the way, he got saved after an applying his training as an investigative journalist to the resurrection account. And he said, if there was no other proof of the resurrection of, of Christ in terms of even witnesses, that the very narrative of the empty tomb and the language that was used in all four Gospels should be proof enough and held up in a court of law that the tomb was empty. It is a beautiful way to write. These guys did not have an editor or commemoration. They wrote what the Holy Spirit inspired to them, right? And it is completely perfect. It's completely perfect. So three quick things that I want us to think about. And you look at this. I mean, Mary ran away, Mary Magdalene, before seeing the empty, or before the other ladies got there and see, saw the angels. And you have all these different things, like uh, there was an angel. And then another account in the Gulf says there was two angels. Doesn't contradict each other. One just says there was an angel. Guess what? There was an angel. Another one says there was two angels because guess what? There were two angels. Because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. You see this, this, this going on. The disciples went away to their own homes. Do you know in one of the other resurrection accounts, when they see the empty tomb, the angels speak and they say, don't you remember that this was written concerning Jesus Christ? Angels, God, Jesus, prophets, all refer us back to the word. All. Three things. Resurrection is commemorated every time we meet on Sunday morning. This is the first day of the week. The disciples gathered the first day of the week and even before the resurrection and after the resurrection and they went out establishing the church, they decided that Sunday morning would be the very day of the week where all the church would gather and we've been doing it for 2,000 years, no matter what Ellen G. White says of the Seventh-day Adventists, she's wrong, they're wrong, the Bible's right. The Bible's right, they're wrong. And we commemorate the resurrection of Christ every time we meet on Sunday morning. Did you know that? It's not just Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Secondly, we commemorate the resurrection in baptism. And that's why we have baptism in our church. Because as Jesus died and then was buried and then rose from the dead, baptism sig signifies that we're dead until we are buried in Christ and then we rise in the power of Christ and His Spirit into new life. So we commemorate the resurrection as we gather on Sunday mornings and as the church has gathered for 2,000 years, we commemorate the resurrection in our baptism services. And very importantly, church, thirdly, we commemorate the resurrection in a repented life. Christ did not rise again from the dead so that we can continue in habitual sin. We must repent. We must repent. Stop the lying and the stealing and the drunkenness and the sexual morality and the covetousness. 
Repent, because when you repent and you walk in holiness, you are celebrating and commemorating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he deserves to be celebrated. And he deserves to be honored, and he deserves to be glorified. Amen? We see the manifestation of his power and control over his death as he gave up his own spirit. We see the manifestation of his power and control over the treatment of his body as his legs were not broken and as myrrh and alloys were poured upon him. We see the manifestation of his power and control over his burial and that a rich man, as Isaiah 53 mentioned, would bury him and Joseph of Arimathea buried him in his tomb. We see the manifestation of his power and control over his resurrection because They were eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. The soldiers, the women, Peter and John, the Sanhedrin from the testimony of the soldiers are testimonies and witnesses of the empty tomb. He has complete power over all these things. And church, I'm here to tell you, he has power over your life too. Are you in pain? Do you have anxiety? Are you faced with a situation that you have no idea how you're going to get out? He can bring you through the fire successfully and righteously without us getting burned. And even if we do get burned, he can still bring you through the fire. And you can come out on the other side. And many of us have come out on the other side of a of a very painful circumstance, knowing that God is alive. Listen, guys. Muhammad is buried in a grave somewhere, founder of Islam. Confucius' bones are kept in a jar somewhere. Buddha's bones are kept in a jar somewhere. The founders of Hinduism, basically, and then Buddhism. But there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem because Jesus is alive. And that's the God we served. I'd rather serving a living God than a dead one. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's teaching. We hope that you've been inspired and blessed. For more teachings and other resources, visit our website at ccelderet.org or call us at 0718-012-496. That is 0718 See you next time.